The book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament tells a story about a priest named Ezra who stood in front of the people who had returned from exile in Babylon. Ezra opened the scroll and read. We don't know what he read from the Torah scroll. Maybe he read about Joseph and his brothers, or maybe he read about Jacob and Esau's reunion. But in a newly rebuilt Jerusalem, Ezra the priest reads from the scroll of Moses to a gathered assembly from early morning until the middle of the day, and the crowd is compelled. Would you hear this story from the 8th chapter of Nehemiah? I'm going to begin with the 5th verse. Standing above all the people, Ezra the scribe opened the scroll in the sight of all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while raising their hands. Then he bowed down and he worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sarabai, Hamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kleta, Azariah, Hosabad, Hanan, and Playa helped the people to understand the instruction while the people remained in their places. They read aloud from the scroll the instruction from God explaining and interpreting it so the people could understand what they heard. Then Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. They said this because all the people wept when they heard the words of instruction. Go eat rich food and drink something sweet, he said to them, and send portions of this to any who have nothing ready. This day is holy to our Lord. Don't be sad because the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This week, my sister, my younger sister, told me a tale of how her children were trying to hijack her well-thought-out plans for the day. And I was reminded of sage parenting advice that I first heard just a few years ago. Maybe too late for me, but it's not for you. Don't negotiate with terrorists. Don't negotiate with terrorists. Don't do it. Don't give them control of the ship. Don't give them control of the day. And because I've been thinking on the topic of Holy Scripture, I thought of all the times I've seen the Bible used as a weapon to manipulate or control. And I want to advise you this morning, don't read the Bible with terrorists either. Don't do it. They are out there, people who will say the Bible says as a way to control behavior or try to control thoughts, if you can do that, or those who say the Bible says it and that's the end of it, whatever, and whatever it is, or fill in the blank Bible study, fill in your blank with the right answer, the one I give you. 
Those are all powerful ways to use scripture, but they all leave out the most distinguishing characteristic of holy scripture, the thing that sets it apart from other ancient texts, and that is dialogue. That is conversation. Dialogue was a part of the crafting of the Bible. It is baked into the recipe, and it remains the place where the divine influence shows up. I've seen it. I've experienced the power of the Bible to challenge and to transform lies, lives. I've seen scripture comfort and encourage people. I've had a passage in the Bible resonate, read my own mail, sounding as if it were written just for me. But none of those things, none of those things happen in isolation. None of it is from God's mouth to my ear. (laughs) There's a very sacred filter involved here, and that's an image of God, another person. It is relationship, it is conversation that makes the Bible holy. The faith walking course first taught me The difference between dialogue and discussion. You see, in a discussion, I try to convince you to see see things the way I see them, and then you return me the favor. We agree or we disagree, but there's no deep listening happening in a discussion. There's no deep listening in play. The root word for discussion is the same as the root word for concussion or percussion. It means to strike. It means to shake. We have all mastered the art of discussion. We do discussion well. And I'll admit it, there are times when my sermon is nothing more than a discussion. But that's not the art of a good sermon. The art of a good sermon is not whether or not you agree with me. The art of a good sermon is that it's a conversation that continues as you leave this place. The conversation goes into the parking lot. It goes to the lunch table. It goes into the week. And see, that's the difference between discussion and dialogue as well. You see, dialogue prioritizes the other. When we have a dialogue... I want to see as you see. I want to hold your view of things, even when it's different from my own point of view. And I trust that dialogue can enlarge my view of things, that dialogue can help me grow. The Latin roots for the word dialogue mean for meaning to flow through. Dialogue is for meaning to flow through, and that is the best that we can get from Holy Scripture, for meaning to flow through to our lives. Relationship and conversation, dialogue is lifted up in this scene from the eighth chapter of Nehemiah. 
This could be a retelling of the very first reading of a large section of the biblical canon. It's speculated that the priest, Ezra, a deadly serious priest, I love Ezra because he likes the rules and he likes ideals. Ezra was probably involved in the compilation and the editing of the Torah in Babylon. And then here in the eighth chapter of Nehemiah, we get a story of the earliest reading of the final draft of Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Chapter eight of Nehemiah tells that at the beginning of the new agricultural year, so this is the seventh month when the agricultural year is beginning, the people gather in a public space in Jerusalem, but it's not the temple. They don't own Bibles, there was no such thing, and most couldn't read. Ezra reads from the instruction scroll of Moses, quite possibly from Deuteronomy or Leviticus, from sun up until noon. And the people say, let it be so. They say, amen, amen. And then a most interesting thing happens. The Levites, the Levites were given their names. There's a list of names, 13 names in all. They're that significant. I tripped over that list as I read the scripture. Those Levites, they go out into the assembly. They go out into the crowd for instruction, for explaining for interpreting. It's the very first Bible study class. It happens right there. There is conversation and dialogue about what Ezra has read, and that is where the power is. That is where the people are moved to tears. And there's this call to celebrate, to feast, because meaning has flowed through to the lives of the people who are gathered there. The day is sacred. And the passage ends with a verse that might sound familiar. If you know anything from Nehemiah, you know this verse. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's another way to translate that verse of Hebrew into English, and that is to say this, God's own joy in us is the source of our strength. God's own joy in us is the source of our strength. I love that so much. It's not that I have to conjure up some happiness or some gratitude, because that would seem to be rather shallow strength, but God is joyful about me. God delights in me, and that is the source of strength. Which reminds me, it reminds me that we all read the Bible in a language that is other from the original text of the Bible, this automatically means that we honor conversation partners that have gone before us and translate the Greek and the Hebrew into English, which is to interpret. To translate is to interpret. I get a little miffed when another English speaker tells me that they take the Bible literally. No, you don't. Every translation is an interpretation. We need to admit this. We need to get on board with this. It's a good 
thing. It continues the conversation, and the Bible is a result of a long line of conversation, holy conversation. Ancient people told these stories to one another, and then the stories were shaped, and they were edited over centuries, and we continue to interpret the scriptures and to witness to their meaning for our lives. We do it. We do it, and it is important work that we keep this dialogue going. We allow God's power to flow through. I want to admit something to you about the book of Nehemiah. This is my very first time to preach from Nehemiah. (laughs) It is not a fan favorite. One can make an argument that this particular book of the Bible promotes racial purity and xenophobia and ritual rigidity. It's really not much when it's lifted up out of the biblical canon and examined on its own. But in conversation with the rest of the Bible, in conversation with the prophets, in conversation with the book of Ruth, things look different. Then Nehemiah becomes more of a jewel. You see, the emphasis of Ezra and Nehemiah, it was originally one book. We've separated it into two in our Bibles. The emphasis of Ezra and Nehemiah is rebuilding Jerusalem as the exiles return. So the people are rebuilding the temple and they're rebuilding the community and they're rebuilding the city and the city walls. And you see the rebuilding becomes difficult, really difficult. It's a bit of a downer. The laws are emphasized. They're overemphasized and enforced. And there's disappointment and there's anger and there's temper tantrums. And that's all from the leaders of the people. The temple is neglected. And the Torah is violated. And it becomes evident, it becomes really clear that something is missing here in the reconstruction. What is missing? What is missing in the rebuilding of the community? Ah, it's spiritual health. The way the Bible Project puts it in their video overview of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is really worth watching. You can see it on YouTube, the Bible Project video overview of Ezra and Nehemiah. They say that the holistic transformation of the heart that was called for by the prophets, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, is missing. It's missing in the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. Their hearts are not being changed. They are not transforming. They are not growing. And so when read alone, this book becomes nothing more than a deflating discussion of an idealistic life. But in dialogue with the rest of the Bible, there's so much more. When you hold this book in dialogue with the rest of the Bible, you see that the people have a really honest struggle for restoration, that the rebuilding is hard work. And we know that, that restoration can be really hard work. When you read this book in conversation with the rest of the Bible, you see 
that the people have a humble need for other people, people who are different from them. And that can be really difficult as well, relating to someone with a different life experience from your own. And then when you read this book in conversation with the rest of the Bible, you see the comfort of God's presence and how that is sometimes difficult to know God's presence, but it's important and it's significant. You know, I think all of those things, the comfort of God's presence, the need for relationship, and the power of restoration, all of those things we can see in our Messiah. We see all those things in Messiah Jesus, God's mercy and grace. In the text that Pastor Lewis read from Luke, Jesus is reading from one of the heaviest of the Torah scrolls, Isaiah. He reads from the Isaiah scroll in his hometown of Nazareth, and he reads of the good news for the poor and the release for the prisoners and liberation for the oppressed and the year of God's favor. But there's one thing that Jesus leaves out of the scroll as he's reading it. He reads out the very next line of Isaiah 61. That line gets no airtime from this Messiah. And both N.T. Wright and Richard Rohr claim that it's significant. Jesus leaves out, and this is the day of vengeance for our God. He doesn't include it. And Rohr uses this example to teach the art of Scripture interpretation to Christians. He says, we read every line of scripture through the stories of Jesus, through the person of Jesus. We interpret the scriptures as Jesus interpreted the scriptures. We push the boundaries further and further out. We challenge the pious for more and more transformation. And the scriptures always, always, always continue conversation as Jesus continued conversation. I noticed on my news feed this week a story about parents of young children and those who work in preschools. The article claimed that these are the people who have it the hardest in January of 2022. Parents of young children and people who work in preschools. With COVID cases on the rise and those under five unvaccinated, the daily routine for young children and those who love them is difficult. It's been disrupted with school closures and quarantines and sickness this month. Apparently, there's a lot of cussing and discussing going on in preschools. I get it. It's true of many places in our lives right now. But, you know, I just hate to see the Bible be one more place where we cuss and discuss. Instead, instead, let's take our cue from the Bible itself, from its design and its stories. May the Bible be a place of invitation where meaning flows through And we get a grip on just a little more transformation for our own lives. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. And we thank you for creating space for us to live freely. 
Your joy in us is indeed the source of strength. Might we too find joy in one another, valuing and delighting in each different point of view. We worship in a space that is built and held by many faithful saints who instructed and explained and interpreted your stories and your ways. For their hard work, we are grateful this day. May we continue your conversations every opportunity we get, every place we go. Amen and amen.